Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is Derek Taylor, and this episode we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue our series on the Traditionalist Movement, 1964 to present. This is episode two, which I'm calling "Disobedient People, 1964 to 1974." Now, last time I talked about the beginnings, the origins of this movement, what caused it. We're gonna get into the actual narrative today and talk about how. The new mass was introduced, why that caused consternation among some people, but that only a few actively began to oppose the introduction of the new mass and the suppression of the old one, and why they did this. And this week we're also going to focus mostly on the lay side of this movement, how laymen reacted and what they did. Next time we'll do the clergy, which is, you'll see why I'll treat them as separate issues here, but also because lay reaction actually in some ways precedes, at least public lay reaction, precedes the clergy for reasons that will come apparent, I think. And so let me begin with an anecdote. We're talking about the introduction of the new Mass. John Casey, who was a lecturer in English at Cambridge University, told a story years ago about a student he had at Cambridge who was Polish in the early 1980s. And this student had been an altar server when he was a boy for the Archbishop of Krakow in Poland. That Archbishop, of course, was Karol Wojtyla, who eventually became Pope John Paul II. And the story this uh, student told him was this, that after he'd uh, left, uh, after he'd become John Paul II, this student decided to go to Rome and look him up and see if he couldn't visit the Pope. And John Paul II, being the jovial person that he was, agreed to see him. And so, when he goes up to him, the first thing he did, according to the student, is sort of fist bump him in the chest. That's John Paul II doing this. And starts immediately saying the, the first words of the old Latin mass to him. In tuibo ad altare dei. I will go unto the altar of God. Uh, I, think, I can't remember the, the next part. It's ad letificat juventutem meam. Um, to the God who gives joy to my youth is the next Latin phrase that the server would give in the old rite. And they went through this until they got to the confidior, to the confession of faith in the Latin rite. And then according to this student, John Paul II then sort of stopped and shrugged and said, well, that's no good to us anymore. And the student said, no, Holy Father, and that's why I don't go to church anymore. And... John Paul II immediately responded, well, don't blame me. It was that maniac, John XXIII, that did this. <laughs> and I give you that story, which is, by the way, if that's what John Paul II actually said, is not accurate. <laughs> um, the reform of the liturgy is, is primarily the, the work of Paul II. Paul VI, I should say. Uh, Pope Paul VI. John XXIII, if you don't, if you don't, uh, don't know, actually issued a year before he died uh, a document, an apostolic constitution called Veterum Sapientia, which actually called for greater study of Latin in seminaries and, and, and keeping Latin. He wasn't going to get rid of Latin. Uh, it 
by the way, he issued this and everybody ignored it, so it didn't matter in the end, but it was not John the 23rd who did this, but it does give you some inkling. And we don't really know, by the way, what happened on the ground in terms of the effect, the sort of overnight changes to the mass that happened and how this affected people's faith. We have lots of anecdotes about people leaving the church when they changed this. No one's ever studied it, uh, as far as I'm aware, in a serious scholarly way. But it gives you an indication. So for some people, when they did this, that just kind of almost destroyed the faith for them. But how could this be? How could this, you know, how could this happen? And this, this goes back to the way this was done, partly. Because what happens is, in 1964, Paul VI, before the councils even ended, they've already, during the Second Vatican Council, issued the Constitution on the Liturgy, calling for reform, and he issues temporary norms in 1964 and allows people to start, start making changes even before the council's over. And so you get the first rollout of vernacular masses in 1964 at Advent. And to give you an idea of what kind of, what kind of changes we're talking about here, let me read a little excerpt from the historian James O'Toole about what this was like. And he gives this, uh, he gives this description, I'm quoting here. <clears throat> Parishioners sitting in their places knew, that morning knew something was different from the moment the Mass began. The week before, the priest and altar boys had entered in silence. Now everyone was expected to sing at least two verses of a processional hymn. The scriptural passages for the day were, were read aloud in the vernacular. The priest, standing behind a new altar set up in the middle of the sanctuary, still said some prayers in Latin, but the people were encouraged to recite others along with him, again in their own language. The distribution of communion was now different. In the past, the priest had repeated a prayer in Latin as he worked his way along the line of parishioners kneeling at the altar. He now paused in front of each parishioner in many places, standing rather than kneeling, held up the communion host so they could see it, and said, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, to which the communicant responded, communicant responded, Amen. In a few months, this too would be said in English, and the altar rail itself would be gone. The church discontinued all Latin by 1969. Thus, James O'Toole. And so what happened was you had changes being made almost immediately. And we need to clarify who's doing what here, because this is important. Paul VI issues a motu proprio in 1964, creating a commission, or sometimes called a concilium, uh, the Concilium for Implementing the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which is established to implement the liturgy. And it has a lot of, in a lot of, in a lot of uh, independence. It works closely with Paul VI. Uh, and he issues this motu proprio sacrum liturgium, giving permission to do things like, again, open things up to the vernacular, doing stuff like this. Uh, you know, readings are, are to be done, you know, uh, facing the people. That was different. The new formula for di distributing communion, which I just sort of um, illustrated there. Those sorts of things. Those sorts of things, as well as mass facing the people. That was introduced, not by the the, uh, the conciliar document itself, Sacrosanctum Concilium, but by this instruction that's given by this concilium called Inter in 1964, the first instruction on how to do this. But what happens is, besides these minimal changes, all of a sudden other things start getting introduced into the liturgy. Things like freestanding altars, removal of altar rails, 
uh, communion in the hand, which would become a, a flashpoint for traditionalists. But this was not commanded either by the Concilium or by Paul VI or by the Council. How did it get there? Basically, what happens in the period 1964 to 1970 is that you're going to have professional liturgists who are charged with implementing these reforms at the, the uh, level of bishops' conferences, basically taking the initiative to make changes on their own. A lot of these liturgists have been trained uh, in liturgical centers, liturgical training centers in Europe and the United States. I won't go into this in too much detail. There's been a liturgical movement at the beginning of the 20th century, which urged reforms uh, to the liturgy. And they had a lot of ideas, these professional liturgists. No one took them very seriously until the Second Vatican Council. And now that they had some authority, they began interpreting the documents of the Second Vatican Council and these instructions that this concilium issued to include these sorts of things. And that's how a sort of free-for-all will sort of begin in the, uh, after 1964. All of a sudden, people just start making changes like crazy, which is what's going to, of course, bring about the traditionalist movement. Now, is this sort of thing, these sorts of uh, events, and I'm not going to dwell too much on the, the craziness I mentioned that last time. I'll, I'll go on a little bit more in a second here, but this is what leads to the formation of the first of these lay traditionalist groups. And the first one I've already mentioned before, I mentioned last time, the most important of these is uh, Una Voce, which can mean one voice. Uh, it's established in 1964 in, in Norway and then in France, and then it spreads to different countries around Europe and then eventually the United States. And uh, again, its membership fluctuates over the years. It is still in existence. It is still the, the oldest and probably most important of these organizations. And it is a, it is basically a, uh, it's a lay organization, a purely volunteer organization, whose main interest at first is to preserve Latin in the liturgy. And this is something that's a, an important thing to note, I'll come back to this. Nobody really knows after 1964 what's coming, what kind of changes are going to come, when they're going to end. The confusion, I can't stress this enough, in the 1960s and 70s, the confusion really drives a lot of things, because there's just not a lot that's certain all of a sudden. Once the old mass seemingly is out, and we'll get to this in a moment, how it formally is supposed to be suppressed, it leads to a lot of chaos. And uh, one of the things about this, they, they formed themselves as an international body in 1967, and they will, um, <clears throat> they will choose as, their, as the first president of Una Voce, a man who I need to dwell on here, guy named Eric Maria Vermeeren de Savinth, Eric de Savinth from Montalhoun, who I mentioned last time was an important figure in this movement, was a convert from Lutheranism, came from an old noble family in Germany, and he's important, well, partly because of his background. I mean, he is, I mentioned he's kind of a patrician type. Both his family, he grew up born in 1919, he grew up in Germany during the era of the Nazis, both his family and the wife of, and the family of his wife, whom he marries, a, a countess named Elizabeth, who's also important in this, in the formation of Unavece and, and its, uh, its uh, operation. She comes from an old Catholic family. He converts when he's 14. But they're all firmly anti-Nazi. And to give you an idea of what kind of, what kind of guy this is, 
he manages to get stationed uh, by the German, the Nazi government in Istanbul. He's trying to get out of the country and bring his wife with him, but they won't send his wife with him. So he had to go back to Germany and try to sneak her out. And what happens is they get stopped by the Gestapo as they're about to leave the country. And they have to uh, enlist the aid of an, a, 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 I it's a Hungarian ambassador to fly her out on a courier plane at the last minute to escape the Gestapo. Um, so this is a this is a fairly again this is an interesting person anyway. Any, 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 in any event, um, the Savitham and his wife make their way eventually to Britain, where eventually they had to start over. They, they work as school teachers at first. He eventually gets a job with Lloyd's of London, working as an insurance, uh, working in insurance I should say, and he'll over time come to take over, come to work first in Zurich at the Zurich branch of Lloyd's of London, the famous. Uh, famous company, and then take over the European branch in 1964. And this is important because it means that the seventh, and because of his background, because of his connections, is multilingual. Uh, he knows how to get around Europe. He knows people in circles that well. He knows how to, he knows people in the hierarchy. So he is perfectly placed to communicate the concerns of people who are affected by these changes and don't like them. And he probably is the most important one of the two or three most important laymen involved in the early um, traditionalist movement. Now, um, just to get that aside, I'll get to them in a moment, what they do early on. But if you wonder what they do, they basically are, you know, petitioning, we'll see in a moment, mostly, mostly I guess you could call them a pressure group to a certain degree, but they're an association of lay faithful to make known the concerns of the, the lay faithful about this. That's something, by the way, that the Second Vatican Council calls the lay faithful to do, <laughs> is to organize and get them involved. Well, here you go, you have a lay organization doing this. And it is worth repeating that in 1965, again, what Una Voce is for is still, it's mostly just about Latin, because, as I mentioned last time, there was an interim missile that was issued in 1965 which was, I think, if they had stopped there with the reforms, there would be no traditionalist movement. Yes, they changed some things, they turned some things into the vernacular, they added some prayers here and there, they took some away. But that, that, that inner liturgy was much more in line, I think, than what the Council wanted. And in fact, to give you an idea of how fluid everything is, let me read this passage for you briefly. This is from 1965, from a cleric who had been a bishop at the Council, talking about the Reformed liturgy in 1965, as they, uh, as they understood the reform that was going on in 1965. Quote, in my humble opinion, uh, two such reforms seemed useful, some of the things that the, the council called for. Uh, first, the rites of the first part of the Mass, that is, and also a few translations into the, into the vernacular. The priest coming near the, near the faithful, communicating with them, and praying and singing with them, and therefore standing in the pulpit, saying the collect, the epistle, and the gospel in their language, the priest singing in the divine, uh, singing, singing in the traditional melodies, the Kyrie and the Gloria, the creed along with the faithful. These are so many good reforms that give back to that part of the Mass its true finality, unquote. The bishop who wrote those words in 1965 was Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X. He'd been at the council, he'd had some problems with things at the council, but he'd signed the document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. He was actually for reform 
What's going to happen after 1965, however, is things are going to go berserk. And just things on the ground, but also things in among professional liturgists, I mentioned before, have been sort of jonesing for decades to try to get their hands on the liturgy, to, in, to you know, implement all their good ideas. And just to give you an idea of what people are writing uh, in the uh, 1960s about this, if you, uh, just a few examples here. In 1966, uh, uh, one Benedictine monk said that worship should be characterized above all by spontaneity. He suggested that a successful mass might be one which, quote, generated the fun of a successful cocktail party, unquote. A Jesuit would characterize the old traditional liturgy as being, quote, a breeding ground for atheism because it seemed to make God irrelevant to life, unquote. Later on, uh, an editor of a uh, journal called Worship uh, said that contemporary man does not deny the transcendental, but he seeks it within the life of this world. There is no hope for liturgical, liturgical reform which would equate the secular with the profane, etc. Uh, another um, journal, Concilium, that's founded in 1969 by European theologians, rejected what they call, quote, mythical symbols which lend a magic superstitious character to public prayer and devotion, the unhealthy climate of escapist dreams, unquote. They called for, quote, the symbols of a freedom which creates its own forms, its own interhuman dialogue, where man represents God and finds his image of God, unquote. Another uh, writer, a Spanish Benedictine, writing in the same liturgy, dismissed what he called the, quote, archaic and meaningless unquote, trappings of the old liturgy, and warned that uh, using it would create, quote, the practicing type of Catholic rather than the believing type of Catholic, unquote. And, uh, and this is another quotation from that same author, quote, only a god of the dead could be pleased with such glacial homage and the faithful who do not rebel on seeing the communitary enclosed, community, I guess, enclosed in such a funereal apparatus probably believe not in God, or not in the god of rites, but in the rites themselves. And you have, in general, liturgists writing uh, things like this all the time, that, well, that old liturgy is terrible, it's the reason why people, people no longer believe in the faith, we need to get rid of it and create it and replace it with something new and spontaneous and etc, etc, and whatever. People talking about things like desacralization, it needs to be desacralized because modern man can't understand archaic rituals anymore, all this sort of, these sorts of things. This type of stuff is in the air, which is why on the ground, again, part of the reason why on the ground all hell breaks loose. You have people, for example, writing Eucharistic prayers and putting them in the liturgy. You have, this is the beginnings of folk masses, of course, people putting, <laughs> literally, you know, actually it's not really folk music, it's pop folk music into the liturgy. You have all sorts of things going on. I won't go through all this, but all this liturgical madness is paralleled by all of a sudden theologians, academic theologians, beginning to question basic aspects of the faith, things like clerical celibacy, which is again a discipline, but it's been, uh, you know, it's an old discipline, ancient one, but also things like the nature of the Eucharist. Theologians like Edward Skilibex, uh, Karl Rahner, who are famous at the Council, progressive theologians, begin you know, trying to, you know, adapt uh, the notion of the real presence to modern man who can't believe in that anymore. In fact, so much so that in 1965, Paul VI issues a, an encyclical called Mysterium Fidei, 
which echoed, tried to reiterate the traditional notion of the, of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Uh, the next a year, in 1966, he sends a letter called Sacrificium Laudis to the uh, heads of religious orders across the world, urging them to retain the Latin language in their Liturgy of the, Liturgy of the Hours. So you have all this stuff going on, which, uh, again, I can't stress this enough, all this stuff is, is going to be sort of swirling around in people's minds and uh, sort of running together, both the doctrinal confusion and the liturgical confusion. At the same time, that concilium I mentioned before is going to work. It spends the next several years from 1964 to 1969 experimenting with a new, trying to create a new missal, a new set of liturgical books. And in fact, in 1967, it will give a private celebration of this experimental liturgy in front of the Roman Synod, if you know what the Roman Synod is. Roman Synod is this uh, advisory body of bishops that was created after Vatican II for, to advise the Pope. And he presents this, they celebrate this, this new revised liturgy, which, as I mentioned last time, is, is actually not a revision of the old liturgy. It's, it is a brand new missal, as you will see. And um, he does it for this synod, and it basically bombs. <laughs> uh, a third of the synod fathers give their approval to it. Uh, a third say no. The other third abstain. And from what we can tell, the other third abstain basically because they didn't want to anger Paul VI, who really wanted this reform. He is simpatico with, simpatico with the secretary of, the, uh, of this uh, concilium, Annibal Bunini, about wanting to create a whole new rite, for reasons that I'll talk about in a moment. They think that the creation of this new missile is not a is, is something they need to do, basically. And so this is all going on. And this is all going on in, in the context of, of course, dissent on other questions like moral questions. It's 1968, of course, is the year of Humanae Vitae, and the widespread rejection of it by not just lay people, but clergy, even bishops. The issuance of the Dutch Catechism in 1966. The Dutch Catechism is this catechism put out by Dutch bishops, which is very... Risque. <laughs> uh, it's it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of it, it, it questions puts into question a lot of basic doctrines, and this is all taking place, of course, within the scope of the the great cultural revolutions of the year 1968. I won't belabor this. Student protests across the world, the crackdown on Hungarian independence movement in the, uh, by the Soviet Union, the cultural revolution in China, worldwide things going crazy. Right. And so it begins to sort of form the traditionalists into a body unto themselves is, in fact, the promulgation of this new missal in 1969. This is the one that most people, of course, if you're listening, this is the one you've worshipped with your whole life or something like it. <clears throat> and uh, he issues his apostolic constitution, does Paul VI, the Missale Romanum, in which uh, basically he, he means this to essentially replace the old one. Now this is a this is a key point of contention among liturgical scholars. At one point in the document, Paul says, quote, We wish that these our decrees and prescriptions may be firm and effective now and in the future, notwithstanding, to the extent necessary, the apostolic constitutions and ordinance issued by our predecessors and other prescriptions, even those deserving particular mention and derogation, unquote. I say this because he clearly intends 
this this missile to be the missile of the church. But he doesn't come out and say, literally, I hereby abrogate the old liturgy and forbid it and suppress it. And this is going to be the contention among traditionalists is that he never did that. He never abrogated it officially. And that only the Pope has a right to abrogate certain liturgies, and they're also going to argue that this one shouldn't be abrogated. That's a separate issue. This will be a... a, 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 a this will be a, 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 a point of contention. And that same year, before it goes into effect, he issues this in the list. I want to say, oof, maybe May of that year, I can't recall. But later in the year, it's supposed to go into effect, go into effect this new missile. He gives a couple of general audiences to does Paul VI. Uh, one on November 19th of that year, 1969, number, one on November 26th. It was scheduled to go into um, effect November 30th, first day of Advent, 1969, the new missile. And he makes, and I'm going to read this to you just because it gives you the basic sense of the arguments he wants to make, why he's doing this. He says in the 19th that, and I'm summarizing, only the, the expression of faith is going to change with the Mass. The substance will be the same, the structure will be the same, it's the same Mass. And the reason why he's doing this, he gives several reasons over two different you know, talks. One big reason is he wants to make the Mass easier to understand, clearer. He thinks by doing this, and this is the argument, these are arguments made by these liturgical reformers who are allied with him, is that this will make for better understanding by the laity, and they will be more, they will be more inclined to actively participate in the liturgy. He also says that this is not a, quote, arbitrary act, I'm quoting there, and that the new liturgy has been created by, quote-unquote, authoritative experts, and therefore is to be trusted. Not only because it's by authoritative experts, but also because he stresses it's demanded by the council. Paul VI and the reformers insist that this is exactly what the council wanted. He'll say things like this again uh, uh, on the 26th, that was on the 19th, um, that um, it's necessary for obedience to the council that we do this because the council called for not just uh, making things easy, easier for people to understand, it called for adaptation. We have to adapt things to the modern situation. Uh, losing Latin will be a great loss, but the vernacular is better because it is more quote-unquote apostolic and makes for better understanding by quote-unquote modern people. This is actually worth quoting this passage. He says, and he, by the way, admits, uh, Paul VI actually has a genuine love of Latin, although there's more involved in all this. He says, quote, Understanding the prayer is worth more than the silken garments in which it is royally dressed. Participation by the people is worth more, particularly, particularly participation by modern people, so, plain, so fond of plain language which is easily understood and convert it into everyday speech. Unquote. And this is, this is the kind of argument you hear from, from the reformers and from Paul VI. Modern people require modern rites. They can't understand archaic rituals. We have to replace it with something new for the purposes, and again, for the purposes of, this is a pastoral justification is my point. This is not primarily, as far as I can tell, a theological justification. He never comes out and says, well, the old mass was evil, we just didn't know it, so we're going to have to replace this. Nope, it's pastoral, right? He's making a pastoral judgment about this. 
And Annabelle Bunini, who's his, uh, the secretary of the Concilium, makes the same points, uh, both in his, at the time and in his memoirs, that the, one of the big rationales for this liturgy is it needs to be adaptive. The old liturgy is too rigid. It's too immobile. That's a term people use, it's immobilism. It has to be, you know, they have in their minds ideas, very historicist ideas, if you know what this is, of evolution. The liturgy evolves over the time, and it hasn't been evolving fast enough. We need to make it evolve faster to catch up with modern people. Uh, Bunini actually makes an interesting comparison as well on this, because he mentions the um, having a more adaptable liturgy for things like missions, right? Among peoples in Africa and places like that. So you need to have a liturgy that's adaptable, flexible. One that can be, you know, done in a variety of different ways. And instead of like the old one, which was, again, essentially its, it's, it's uh, genius, if you like, was to be the same everywhere. Now you're going to be adaptive are the major ideas about this. Thus is this reform introduced. And I need to stress, by the way, this shocked a lot of people. Uh, no one, a lot of people weren't aware that the Vatican was planning on moving on a new missile. And in fact, this is going to be one of the things that effectively sets off this traditionalist movement. Because what happens is, in 1969, they published this, this missile. They published a general instruction to go with it the general instruction on the Roman Missal. <clears throat> and this is actually going to provoke the first intervention by Una Voce indirectly, because a couple of women, a woman writer whose name escapes me in Italy, Italian members of Una Voce, uh, contact a couple of theologians at the, uh, Angelicum and other places in, in Rome to write a critique of the new Mass. And they go and find, they write this critique, <clears throat> it's called a short critical study of the, of the new liturgy of the Novus Order or whatever, you can find it on the internet. And they find two cardinals willing to sign off on it. Cardinal Antonio Bacci and Cardinal Ottaviani. Ottaviani had been the former prefect of the Holy Office, what is today the CDF. He was also blind as a bat and didn't know what he was signing, but he signed it anyway. And this was published. And it severely critiques the, the new missile. And it had a lot of critiques here, but I'll go through, I'll, 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 again, I'll list them and show you why they're, why they're upset. They, they'll particularly be upset about the, the general instruction, which I'll come to in a moment, but they have other grievances. They think that the prayers of the new missile downplay the real presence and the sacrifice of the Mass. They think that it makes the priest seem less like a mediator than a mere presider. Again, like a Protestant minister, basically. They also make the, the point that all these changes to the prayers, to, all these other, to gestures, they, they complain, by the way, about the elimination of gestures, things like eliminating uh, the number of times the priest kneels before, before the altar, right? Because they think that indicates, oh, wait, that'll, that'll send the signal that people don't believe in the real presence. They also object, of course, to, this is a big point of contention with all the people who critique the new missile, is that it basically displaces the old Roman canon. If you know what the Roman canon is, that's the, that's the only Eucharistic prayer that the Old Roman liturgy has ever had, basically. And if you want, what the Eucharistic prayer is the prayer that the priest prays over the Eucharistic elements, the bread and the wine, to invoke uh, the Holy Spirit or to invoke God to accept them and have them become the body of Christ. 
And what the new missile does is it, it introduces optional prayers, which again is they, this is something that horrifies these. By the way, the Roman canon is the oldest part of the old missile. It is old, right? It goes back to the fourth century. So all these things, in their minds, this is this is basically a sort of break with the church's tradition. But it also is more important because uh, they complain a lot about how it breaks with the intentions of the Council of Trent when they had last revised the Roman Missal. Because one of the things that they were complaining about was one of the reasons why we call sometimes the Tridentine Missal the Tridentine Missal is because the Council of Trent ordered the Pope to make revisions to the Mass, to make clear, make sure that it expressed clearly the doctrines of the faith, like the real presence and the sacrifice of Christ. And the reason why was back in the 15th, 16th century, people were going around and making changes to the liturgy in local places. Um, and not only that, of course, the Protestants had made changes to the, to the Mass, and they wouldn't prevent confusion. And so that's why Paul V, uh, St. Pius V, issued that missal to make those things clear. Not to change anything, not to make a whole new missal, but to do that. That's why also why he abrogated certain local liturgies that were less than 200 years old, because they, they, they needlessly multiplied the faith and made things more confusing. And so it seemed like to these theologians who are making this critique that they were making all these changes which were going to feed into this confusion which was obviously going on at the time. And this sometimes become a, becomes a point of contention because they they criticize the, G, the the general instruction, which is of itself a a, a sort of a sort of um, um, uh, even more problematic really than the missile itself. And the reason that sets them off is well, what they still refer to a lot of traditionalists is the seventh article, the seventh paragraph of that original general instruction of the Roman Missal for 1969. And uh, I'll read it to you. This is, this is what the, this, uh, this actually says in the Roman instruction. It says, quote, The Lord's Supper or Mass is the sacred meeting or congregation of the people of God assembled, the priest presiding, to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. For this reason, Christ's promise applies eminently to such a local gathering of Holy Church, where two or three come together in my name, there I am in their midst. It's quoting Matthew. Unquote. That, of course, if you think about that for a second, sounds a lot like a Protestant version of the Eucharist, which is one of the things that made the people who wrote this critique go ballistic. <laughs> it sounds like you're turning this into a communal meal. A lot of people are saying this stuff. Theologians are saying this stuff. This looks like Rome has gone over to the dark side, basically. And in fact, there'll be a, a big to-do about this. I'll get to this in a moment, but this intervention actually uh, forces the, uh, the Rome to withdraw that, uh, that original missile. And in fact, uh, it, for a long time, it was hard to find that original uh, general instruction of the Roman missile, even in Latin, uh, because it was so controversial. Because not only did it, I, I just read you that passage where it describes the Mass as basically a, a Protestant a memorial service, it, it also never mentioned, hardly mentioned sacrifice at all, and it never mentions the Council of Trent at all, which turned off alarm bells, again, in the minds of some of these traditionalists. And like, this is what's going to form them. And, and a lot of those critiques I just mentioned in that uh, intervention, which is sometimes called the Altaviani intervention, even though he really didn't have much to do with it, uh, they're, they're going to be central critiques of the New Liturgy to this day among people who are traditionalists. Uh, both ones who are in communion with Rome and outside of it. They think there are problems 
deficiencies in the new missile. And so Rome withdraws that general instruction in the missile and they rewrite it and they actually <laughs> they change that paragraph specifically to make it say the mass is a sacrifice. They reintroduce um, mentions of Trent in the general instruction and they re-promulgate it again in 1970. <laughs> and in fact, when they do this, a lot of people who had been critical of the initial text pronounced themselves satisfied, including Cardinal Ottaviani and many others. And in fact, this is the thing that's going to separate the traditionalist out, is that many agree with, uh, with Cardinal Siri, who's been a, a leader of the more conservative bishops at Vatican II, who wrote that the council did, quote, did not ask for any such revolution, unquote. They recognized that what this, this new missile represented was a break with tradition. Um, whatever, whatever way you want to sort of justify it. And by the way, most people, most traditionalists, I think, recognize the Pope has a right to create new rights. But this is something different because it looks like an attempt, as we'll see, it will be to suppress the old mass totally. And so Cardinal Siri says this, and yet he also said, now because it was part of church law, all you could do was obey. And this is where you're going to have the, the new mass becoming the sort of dividing line, the new missile becoming the dividing line for people like Unavoce, because this is going to set them on a path. Like, we, we, wait, we, we still have a problem with this. And um, to give you, to wind up with this, uh, this part of, the, this, part of this, uh, this episode here, in uh, 1970, Unavoce has its first uh, international meeting in, in New York City. And what happens is, uh, Eric de Sabin gives a lecture, gives a talk to them. And I want to read some excerpts from it because it kind of captures what the most articulate, the least crazy parts of the traditionalist movement uh, are saying and that they want to uh, put out there. So let me... Um, uh, let, me, uh, let me read part of this. And um, he goes, he hits on the head here, because of course, <clears throat> well, let me read this to you. He addresses this in this, in, this, uh, in this speech. The promulgation of the new Ordo Missae brought us face to face with what is fast becoming the loyal Catholic's problem number one. How to combine some familial submission to the Holy Father with respectful but open criticism of some of his acts. He hits the nail on the head because, of course, this is in the Pope's remit to create new liturgies, right? Uh, as you're going to see in a moment, though, some of the things Paul VI does are, in fact, without precedent. He goes on to say, Univoce should strive to obtain the maintenance of the Tridentine Mass, quote, as one of the recognized rites of the, in the liturgical life of the Universal Church, unquote. He's actually referring to the, the, the Vatican II document on that liturgy there. He's quoting that. He goes on to say, but this was not tantamount to a condemnation of the new ordo. He's talking about what they believe in. By being for the Tridentine rite of the Mass, we are not against the new ordinary of the Mass in a sense of outright rejection. Just as we were not against the vernacular when we pleaded for the retention of liturgical Latin. The Church has always known a plurality of recognized rites and of liturgical language. But that pluralism, to use the modern word, grew out of respect for tradition. Thus, St. Pius V himself, when he introduced the uniform of admissal at the Council of Trent, specifically confirmed the legitimacy of certain other rites of venerable origin and usage. And so you have this, and he's talking about uh, this, what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping quoting there. 
And he's talking about the situation they're in, about what's going on, all the craziness. He says, quote, We are witnessing, just, uh, just witnessing a repetition, both of the proliferation of unauthorized texts and of Episcopal inability to cope with it. He's referring to the Reformation. He goes on, Perhaps you may also see a repetition of that act of wisdom, which just over 400 years ago made the bishops ask to draw up and enact in perpetuity the uniform ritual of the Mass, which was promulgated in 1970. He's hoping for that they'll let the new Mass, the old Mass, live. He goes on, The pluralism of today is of a different ilk. It is the watchword and war cry of those who want to set tradition aside. That is why, in the midst of a new proliferation of liturgical rites and texts, we witness the practical suppression of the one rite, which in perfect manner enshrines the Church's most sublime treasure, the holy mystery of the Mass. So far, the suppression is achieved de facto only and not de jure. That means in fact and not in law. Indeed, it would be unthinkable for the old Ordo Missae ever to be officially forbidden. To justify this, one would have to argue that it was in some manner wrong or bad, either doctrinally or pastorally. To prove either would be tantamount to denying that the Church is guided by the Holy Ghost. It is therefore inadmissible even to suggest that the old Ordo might be rightfully outlawed. And he uh, goes on to mention all this. He goes on to mention, you know, the situation they're in. But this is the basic argument. That, that you really can't deny. You can't, there's no good reason, theologically speaking, to get rid of the old right. And it can't be suppressed for purely pastoral reasons, I think, is the response of, of, uh, of de Saventhum to what I just mentioned earlier with the arguments of Paul VI. It's not evil. Why should it be suppressed? Uh, doctrinally or pastorally, what was wrong with it that it needed to be, you know, suppressed totally. Uh, and he goes on to mention, to go into, I won't read the whole thing to you, you can find it on the internet yourself, but one of the things he says is, and this is why I called this episode Disobedient People, is they're, of course, they're in the position of being, you know, basically made disobedient if they don't, you know, and they do accept the new Mass, they're trying to, they're trying to accept that, and they still want to retain the old Mass. He rattles off a bunch of different documents that have been issued by Paul VI uh, since, the, uh, since the, the council, which have been meant to sort of curb abuses, which have been ignored. <laughs> uh, he goes on to mention all the different doctrines that people have uh, rejected, which have been ignored. He's thinking about things like Humanae Vitae, and he's thinking about things like um, uh, all the things that have been issued since the, the, the council. In other words, they're being accused of disobedience just for being faithful to tradition. And I think this isn't right. Uh, and he goes on to say, basically, uh, that all these other documents have been disregarded, and I'm quoting him here now, totally disregarded by lay people, by priests, by bishops and cardinals, and indeed at the very top itself, for more than one reigning uh, pontiff, has gone against the clear injunctions of his immediate predecessors. And I'll leave you with one last quotation here. He says, It is totally wrong to label us as reactionaries, as people who cling stubbornly to the ways of yesterday, whose minds are closed to necessary and beneficial reform. Uh, because they are basically trying to hold on to that heritage and have it be reformed in an organic way, in a way that's consonant with tradition. What they don't see in the new reforms is something that is consonant with it. 
And so that's going to be where we leave off in uh, 1970 with the creation of Una Voce and the promulgation of that missile.